Hey, Deserving Listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would respond to some emails. This first email is from patron Tim. Tim writes, As an Australian registered nurse, I have to continually demonstrate I am competent in basic mental health first aid. I am a huge advocate for public health literacy, awareness, and education. In Australia, we have a 17-year-old national program for mental health first aid. It has its own mnemonic, ALGI, which stands for Approach, Assist, or no, Approach, Assess, Assist, Listen, Give Support, Give Information, Encourage Professional Health, and Encourage Other Supports. I have found this not only relevant to my occupation, but a valuable resource in my personal life. A childhood friend of mine... He is also a fan of yours and has given me permission to disclose this recent um, situation. He suffers from mental illness. He manages pretty well, although he sometimes has a crisis. One instance, his wife had called me when she found him moving their furniture out onto the lawn. He was having a psychotic episode, and he was cleaning everything because his parents were, were visit his grandparents were visiting. But his grandparents had passed away. So we tried to point it out to him that his grandparents were dead, and he simply responded that it didn't matter. It took him a while to gain a little insight and calm down. If we, if we didn't both already know him and those present didn't have some idea of mental health first aid, I don't think we would have been able to eventually talk him down. Australia has a rather proactive public awareness campaign regarding mental health first aid. That's why I found it kind of worrying that I couldn't easily find an equivalent first aid program in the United States. Does the U.S. have a first aid model that incorporates mental health? If not, do you think they should? Interesting question, Tim. Let me introduce the podcast. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Um, my This is just anecdotal, but my anecdotal sense of us in the United States is that we are completely unaware of mental health first aid. I have taken uh, regular first aid courses in the past, and I think there might have been like a minor mental health element to it, but I remember actually thinking it was kind of laughable or just way too brief or something. So yeah, in fact, as you said, mental health first aid in your email, I had never even heard of that um, concept before. Uh, I like it, but I'd never heard of it before. Now, I'll go into the fact that um, just because I'm completely unaware of it doesn't mean that many in the United States actually know very well about it So and have been trained and this is their thing. So I, but, but, you know, it is interesting, I think, that me, a mental health professional, have never even heard of the notion or the concept of mental health first aid. Now, you know, I could just be one of the few people who really just doesn't understand that. But I do think it's interesting that I've been practicing for 20-some years and have never even heard of the concept. Or I don't remember the concept. I don't know. It, and your email, I'll explain it in a bit about mental health first aid, but the email reminds me of this moment in which I actually had to engage in mental health first aid. I Well, let me back up even further. When I first became a therapist, I think I was watching a movie or something and people were on an airplane and, you know, someone had, someone collapsed and the captain or the person, the, you know, the attendant came over the PA and said, is there a, is there a doctor in the house? Is there a doctor or is there a doctor on the plane that can help us? You know, that whole thing. And so I was like, oh, I wonder what would happen if I was in a place and they suddenly needed a therapist or something. You know, would they say, this person is having an episode. Is there a therapist? Is there a mental health professional on the plane? Can they please come forward and save the day? And I would put on my, you know, Freudian cape and like, you know, swoop in and save the day. It just seemed like this, um, I don't know. I don't know what I thought about it, but I remember thinking about it. And then one day, I was at a camp for high school kids and, and, and uh, middle school kids. And this uh, young woman, 17 years old, you know, 12, 12th grader, she had um, 
she she was really nervous about going up on stage and and so nervous to the point where she started to kind of freak out and a bunch of people started her friends started kind of crowding around her and she was breathing really heavily and they called for me because I was a mental health professional and so they called for that Kirk you know whoever so I come around the corner and I see her and she's standing you know up and a bunch of people are around her and she's saying I can't feel my face I can't, and she's breathing really heavily and I can't feel my hands I can't feel my face I can't feel my hands okay so I've talked about on the podcast before that I've suffered from panic attacks you know not many you know say 5 or 10 in my life particularly when I was in my 20s and so I knew panic forwards and backwards. It was very concerning to me, and I treat I treated people with panic. I, 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 I felt like I knew panic very, very well. And so when I saw her, I thought it was a panic attack. Um, long story short, it wasn't. Well, I mean, you could say it was a it was a minor panic attack, I suppose. But mainly, what it was was hyperventilation. But I didn't know what hyperventilation was. I thought it was a panic attack, and I thought her statement that she couldn't feel her face or her hands was some kind of uh, minor delusion as a result of, of the anxiety. And so, but I, I did understand that she could pass out and fall and hit her head. So I did have her get down on the ground, lay down, and 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 I proceeded to try to make her feel better, which, you know, did make her feel a little better. She stopped kind of running around. She felt like she was in good hands. And I, and I sat next to her and I said, um, I told her to uh, just keep breathing and to believe that everything's going to be okay. I said, you know, you're going to be okay. The the panic will come, it will go, and you'll be okay. And it was sort of a pretty tense moment because I was really worried about her, and there we weren't near any hospitals. We were way out in the middle of nowhere, and so I wasn't even quite sure what was happening to her. You know, it wasn't, if you called an ambulance, my guess is it would be like maybe a couple hours, maybe an hour before even one arrived. And so I was kind of worried about that. A lot of, there's a lot of crowds of people around, you know, watching me try to help her. And I'm doing this probably for a while. I don't know. It's mortifying to think about, but I'm I'm doing the wrong thing. I'm doing some good things, but I'm doing actually a wrong thing for about, I don't know, maybe five minutes, maybe longer. I don't know. And I'm telling her to, to breathe. To, what I'm telling her is that she doesn't have enough oxygen because that's what's often true with panic is that when people start to freak out with a panic attack, their their fight or flight kicks in, and they actually breathe in a way that's too shallow, and they actually their their oxygen goes towards their muscles and not to their brain, and they become confused. And so I was telling her to to breathe a lot, you just keep breathing, get oxygen into your brain, which is good advice for someone going through a panic attack, but bad advice for someone who's hyperventilating, which means that they're actually taking in too much oxygen. Uh, for people who are hyperventilating, their actual their anxiety is causing them to breathe too much, which is a concept that was not very um, known to me at the time, because the idea that you could have too much oxygen that doesn't that didn't make any sense to me. But you can you can have too much oxygen in the blood, and that actually creates problems and can cause anxiety and can actually and can cause numbness in the hands and in the face. But I didn't know that. So I'm telling her I'm telling her a lot of things that's fine. I got her down on the ground. I told her to calm down. I told her everything's going to be okay. And I was there. I was a stable force. And, you know, that was helping. But I was telling her to breathe too much. And so a physician, actually, who was on staff came up to me. And so her and I were the only professionals at this camp. And thank God she was there. And she came up to me, and she whispered in my ear, she's hyperventilating. You want to have her breathe less. <laughs> And I just find it to be so funny that she had enough, um, I don't know, uh, she had enough intelligence or awareness of the situation to not only see that uh, w what was really happening was hyperventilation, but she also saw that if she just said something from the crowd or said said it loud enough, you know, it would have been like just terribly humiliating to me because I would have been... Um, uh, just outed as, you know, here I come to save the day and I swoop in and then I proceed to like actually do the opposite of what should be done. So, she, you know, she says very quietly, quietly to me, you know, she's hyperventilating and you need to have her. <laughs> it's just so funny because I'm, 
I'm just so stupid. And it's and it, in that like split second, I was like, everything started, you know, everything came crystal clear. It's like, oh, that must be why her hands, you know, her hands are numb and her face is numb. Oh, um, I never knew what hyperventilation meant. And well, which makes sense because I'm not a physician. I'm not a biological medical professional. I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a talk therapist. What do I know about hyperventilation or oxygen in the blood or any of that kind of stuff? And so I, you know, then I changed my tack and I said, okay, I need you to, I need you to breathe less. We need to, we need to get, you know, some of the oxygen out of your blood. And within, you know, probably 30 seconds of me telling her to do that, uh, it was better, you know. You know, having said that, I, you know, I did some things right. You know, I got her down on the ground so she didn't pass out and, you know, crack her head open. And I was there telling her everything was going to be okay because it was. But the breathing thing was just um, ridiculously stupid of me. And and that was, I don't know, 11 years ago. And I remember it like it was yesterday. <laughs> so I, after that, realized that I actually don't have the training just because I'm I work in mental health and just because I, I'm a good talk therapist doesn't mean anything about my ability to provide mental health first aid, of which I didn't even know there was such a term. And I realized that if I am on a plane and somebody says, is there a therapist or a you know, psychology professional, mental health professional on the plane, you know, I'd go up there, but I'd say, look, you know, yeah, I, I'll offer my help, but there's probably a pretty good chance I'm going to have no idea how to help. So you know, maybe we could Google something. <laughs> so, um, so that's what comes to mind when I think of mental health first aid. Um, all right. What is mental health first aid? So this is from a website. Mental health first aid is a public education program that can help individuals across the community, understand mental illness, support timely intervention and save lives. One in five Americans has a mental illness and may, and many are reluctant to seek help or might not know where to turn for care. The symptoms of mental illness can be difficult to detect. As a society, we largely remain ignorant about the signs and symptoms of mental illness. Mental Health First Aid is an eight-hour course that introduces participants to risk factors and warning signs of mental health concerns, builds understanding of their impact, and overviews common treatments. Mental Health First Aid allows for early detection and intervention by teaching participants about the signs and symptoms of specific illnesses like anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, bipolar, eating disorders, and addictions. The program also offers concrete tools and answers, key questions such as, what can I do and where can someone find help? Um, and it lists here how many times they've been doing this. Um, in 2008, the National Council of Behavioral Health brought mental health first aid to the U.S., maybe from Australia. I don't know. To date, more than one million people in communities around the country have been trained in mental health first aid through a network of more than 12,000 certified instructors. Mental health first aid has been taught to a variety of audiences, including healthcare, human services, and social workers, employers, business leaders, faith community leaders, college and university staff and faculty, law enforcement, public safety officials, veterans, and family members, persons with mental illness, addictions in their families, and other caring citizens. So that is what's been happening in the United States, completely out of my awareness anyway. I also Googled, uh, you know, mental first aid and found that there's a lot of news articles that have been published in local publications. <clears throat> for, for example, this one from Hannibal, Missouri, says, Mental health issues are showing up in schools across America every day. In fact, the CDC said one in seven children between the age of two and eight has a mental, behavioral, or developmental disorder. But is your child's teacher equipped to spot it? Around a dozen teachers in the Hannibal School District took part in a youth mental health first aid training. Teachers said they've been seen. They, teachers said they've seen signs of mental health issues in the classroom, but didn't know how to help until Monday's training. We need to reduce that stigma of always being worried about mental illness and treat it like a physical illness where something can be done about it. Whether you're a doctor or, or here's another here's another article uh, from another town. Whether you're a doctor or a teacher or a parent, health experts say. Knowing how to respond to a mental health crisis is critical to keeping kids safe. <clears throat> so 
basically, there's just all these articles talking about how mental first aid is is being, um, you know, the training is being given to teachers and other kinds of people, police officers. Um, and it seems that they're mostly concerned with suicide. That seems like a common thing that these articles talk about. It's like, well, you know, a, a kid in our high school had killed themselves, and so we're worried that there might be other kids, and we want to be able to see the signs. Or a kid in a neighboring town completed suicide, and we worry about our own kids, so our teachers train to detect signs of suicidality, that kind of thing. And also there seems to be an implication that maybe some of these kids aren't being properly assessed at home, and so the schools might need to do it. I personally like this trend. I think it's um, something that we're doing to push back against the stigma, against the taboo nature of mental illness, providing education, more awareness, um, provide resources to people, um, give permission to teachers to actually like do something about some things. Yeah, I, I totally, I totally dig it. I wonder how useful it is. Although it is eight hours, so I'm guessing you know. Something is something. Something good is happening in that, in that eight hours. Uh, it seems like I did see some role plays that people were doing, and I have to say, the role plays are really awful. Role plays are hard, you know. Just asking trainers or participants to role play someone who's having a psychotic episode is, you know, that's a pretty tall order. But um, anyway, uh, so those trains are happening. Um, but really, much more needs to be done, right? In addition to mental health first aid, we mainly need funding for more clinicians of various types who work for perhaps public institutions to help those who can afford um, services and who can't. We need more education. We need, honestly, we need kind of like a PR officer for mental health, and uh, we need lobbyists. We need research. We need funding for research. Uh, more, I should say. Um, you know, one of the only ways to make money in this field in the United States is to go into private practice, which means that you're working with what we call higher functioning clients, uh, usually. Um, and those needs are there. And it's not like higher functioning clients aren't also suffering from mental illness because they are. But there's this huge like group of people who are middle class and and lower in socioeconomic status who really have a hard time accessing help. And that is like not fair and weird in a one of the richest countries that has ever been on this planet. We can't afford just a you know a small percentage of our GDP to dedicate to uh, mental health. It's just bizarre. Um, so we you know there's a lot of other things that I was thinking that we could, we could do. We need really more in-depth training for police or police who really specialize in this kind of thing. And certainly police are being trained somewhat, but, you know, we hear stories about mistakes being made, you know, like someone who is, um, you know, threatening to kill themselves, the police show up and shoot him. You know, it's like um, some of the circumstances, it makes sense because the person is like, um, has a gun and they're waving it around. It's like, well, you know, you have to, you have to do something for safety, but sometimes the person is just very, very upset, maybe having a psychotic episode themselves. There is no weapon and the police proceed to um, go through their regular procedure and kill someone in the process. Um, really, but everyone needs to be trained, not just police officers, obviously. And really what we need while I'm thinking about it is we just need a more inviting system in general you know, when you have a toothache, where do you go? You know, you're, you're too, you wake up in the morning and, or it's been five days and your tooth is just really hurting. Where do you go? Well, you go to your dentist. Not only do you know to go to a dentist, but you actually have a dentist, right? Most people have a regular dentist. They just make an appointment with a regular dentist. They go to the office and, you know, and, and, and when you are thinking about calling the dentist, how positive are you that, that something's going to work? You're, you know, for me, when I have a pain in my tooth, I'm like 99.9% sure that a dentist, my dentist or someone that they refer me to is going to be able to solve my problem. And they often do. Well, if you have a problem with mental health or a family member is having a problem with mental health, like they're depressed or anxious or grieving or crying a lot or 
they seem confused or they're having problems with memory or um, someone calls you and says, you know, my cousin is having a psychotic episode. I don't know what to do. You know, where do you go? Do you know where to go? Well, many of you might call the police, I suppose, or the crisis line or something. But when you, again, when you have a problem with your tooth, you don't call the crisis line. You call your dentist. You know exactly who to call. How come so many of us don't know where to turn? You know, and that's, that's a problem with, with us. That's a problem with our society and our field in that we don't have a system that is responsive in that way. It, now, some of you might have a therapist, and you might call that person. You know, might, might call your parent, your therapist. But your therapist might not have the ability to respond right away. And really, therapists are pretty highly specialized, you know, so they might not even know what you're talking about if you did call them. Um, but what if you didn't have a therapist, right? And and even if you did have a therapist and you did manage to call the crisis line and you did manage to get a hold of some professional, there's this super complicated process of actually getting to the right person. Uh, there are wait lists. There are weird, confusing answers. There's all these clinicians siloed away in different sections of our of our business. Um, it can be super expensive. You can end up going to the wrong person. And again, when you have a problem with your tooth, there isn't that process. I mean, I'm sure there's bad stories out there for some people. But, you know, like I had a problem with my tooth. I go to the dentist and they're like, oh, yeah, it looks like you have a cracked molar and it looks like you might need a root canal. And I'm like, oh, boy, you know, and they take x-rays and do this stuff. And then they send me to a, you know, their their colleague that does root canals. And I make the appointment and I do the root canal and, um, and you know, and there you go. Problem solved. Now, you know, dentistry is much less complicated than mental health. But at the same time, it's like the, that we just completely give up as a society when it comes to mental health. And and so mental health first aid is, is a part of that, you know, that um, that we are trying to do to actually bring uh, common sense and skills to the population so that they can um, actually actively help people. So to patron Tim, um, thanks for introducing me to mental first aid. I'm a sh- if Australia is that uh, aware of mental health first aid, that's just a, you know one way in which Australia is better than the United States. You know, let's be honest; it's probably the only way. Uh, just joking, just joking. When I was a kid, I was obsessed with Australia, and I wanted to go there. I had an Australia shirt. And I just heard all these really great things about Australia. You know, Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> I recently rewatched Crocodile Dundee. It is a terrible movie. It's not even funny at all. But man, that movie was popular when I was a kid. Uh, no, but I just had this really romantic version of Australia and always wanted to go there. But never had the money or the time. Maybe one day. But... um Thank you, Tim, for introducing me to algae, which is the mnemonic that says approach when, you know, if you see somebody approach them, assess them, you got to figure out what's going on, but as long as you have the skills to assess, you want to assist them, right? If they need to sit down, they need a glass of water, they, um, if they need to talk to somebody, if they if they're bleeding and they need you know you to call an ambulance or something, you assist them, and then you listen to them because that's a big part. Because they might be confused, they might be really upset, and so you got to listen. And then you offer support, emotional support, maybe you know tangible support. You give information to them, like okay, so this is what we're going to do, and how about that? You encourage them to get professional help, and you encourage them to have other supports around them. So that is algae. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's much more complicated than I'm describing it. All right, let's go on to another email. But before we do that, let's take a break. All right, welcome back to the break. Just some orders of business here. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast, do so now. Go to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. When you become a patron, you can sleep well at night knowing you are supporting this podcast, it's the main way in which we can keep going is when people become patrons. I want to thank Frida, Dennis, Diamond, Stephanie, Alex, Steve, Mary, Emily, Reed, Sharon, Silvano, Rosa, Catherine, Sarah, Annie, Skylin, Laura, 
Julie, Mike, Elizabeth, Dave. Thanks for becoming uh, patron of the, of the patrons of the podcast. And uh, with your support, we can keep going. Another thing here is that if you want to buy my book called Multi-Role Clinical Supervision, when you do buy my book, realize that in the first chapter, there are a couple incidental, you know, tiny little uh, typos that I've realized <laughs> that are finally there. I can't tell you how many times I and my editors read every word of my book. And for some reason, in the first chapter alone, there are something like three typos that um, it's just bizarre. You know, it's like, how did, how did that happen? We were all, you know, I understand me, but it's like, I've, I was paying editors to look it over and I, and I trust them. And it's just like, you know, eye fatigue or reading fatigue or something. I don't know. It's really embarrassing, but the rest of the book I'm pretty proud of. Also, if you're having trouble getting um, access to the premium feed with all of our deep, deep dives, let me know. Just email us at contact at psychology in Seattle and I can help you. Also, Join the Facebook fan group on Facebook, naturally, and uh, be a part of the conversation. Like us on Facebook. Participate in our Tuesday Tougher Bluff games. That's always fun. Also, if you want access to older episodes, we have over 700 episodes. And on your phone, you probably only have access to about half of those. And so if you want the full archive, go to our website. Every episode is up on the website. Also, our 10-year show, August 11, 2018, is at North City Bistro in Shoreline, Washington at 3 o'clock on Saturday, August 11. If you want more information, go to Facebook and look at the event. Also, if you want a mug, become a $20 patron, and I will send you a mug. I actually just got a new batch of mugs, and when people become $20 patrons, I actually wrap them up in um, packing material and go to the post office myself and give it to the nice woman behind the counter, and she mails it directly to you. All right. So let's read our another email here. This person says, Dear Dr. Professor Honda, I am halfway through my master's in psychotherapy, and within my paid work, which is conducting DV or domestic violence risk ass assessments, I'm faced with the knowledge that one of my university lecturers, one of my university instructors, is an alleged domestic violence perpetrator meaning that his wife has now fled the family home and is seeking psychological support from the organization I work for. The idea that someone can be, that someone can dedicate their life to the helping profession and yet be an asshole in their private life breaks my heart. He is one of the nicest, most caring and considerate teachers I've ever met. And yet I cannot ignore the knowledge I now have about him. Can I believe a word he says about compassion, empathy, and our professional standards? Should I take the view that he is innocent until proven guilty and that he too deserves compassion rather than judgment? Regardless, I am obviously bound by confidentiality and can never disclose to him what I know about his, his private life. And still, there is a part of me which wants to confront him and out him. What are your thoughts on the matter? Yeah, this is a tough situation. Uh, it reminds me of two lessons I learned early in my career. One of which I learned in a very difficult way that was not easy for me, which was that therapists and instructors, people who work in our field, people, mentors of mine, supervisors of mine, these people are not perfect human beings. I actually write about this in, uh, quite a bit in that first chapter with that has the few typos it, called Multi-Role Clinical Supervision, the book, in in that chapter, I basically talk about how I got fired from my first internship and how my first supervisor was um, abusive to me, for lack of a better term. And I had full um, trust in him and everyone in his position, you know, and thought all supervisors, you know, it's like, well, geez, if you're a therapist, you must be an awesome human being. But man, if you're a supervisor of therapists, man, you're the boss of other therapists, you must be like one of the best, most compassionate, most level-headed human beings on the planet. Boy, is that not what I learned. <laughs> right away, I was, and it actually took me a while to kind of internalize that lesson, but I definitely learned that. What I learned, actually, was that teachers, supervisors, therapists, they are human beings like anyone else, and they have problems. So, you know, if, say, 1% of the population is a domestic violence perpetrator, well, then 1% of our therapists 
are domestic violence perpetrators. 1% of our psychology professors are domestic violence perpetrators. 1% of our, um, you know, kindergarten teachers are domestic violence perpetrators. There was this notion in my head when I was starting out that, okay, we have the regular population with all their rates of problems, but then therapists, surely they have it figured out because, you know, they teach this stuff. They're supposed to have all this stuff figured out. Well, what I learned is, no, they don't. <laughs> uh, yeah, they, they work in the field, but that, that means nothing. You know, it's like for me, when I became a therapist, that, you know, it's like before I was a therapist, I had all the problems as a regular person. As soon as I got that degree and started practicing as a therapist, that didn't erase my problems at all. I had, ex- I had the same exact problems the day after graduation as I did before I even started graduate school. Now, having said that, being a therapist did help me. Uh, all the therapy you go through, all the classes, all the thinking, all the self-help, all the self-reflection, it definitely helps you grow. But there's no perfect human being. I mean, the Dalai Lama, I'm sure, has bad moments, has bad moods and gets aggressive sometimes and, and has, you know, I'm sure there's someone walking around that thinks the Dalai Lama is an asshole. You know what I mean? And so it's, uh, it's human. We're humans. And the Dalai Lama would be the first person to admit that he's not perfect. So he's not claiming to be, and no therapist should claim they're perfect. And in my experience, they don't. I mean, you get therapists together and we're just like, oh boy, you know, blind leading the blind, (laughs) you know, but that's the whole thing about therapy is we're not leading anybody. We're helping. We're, you know, uh, there are physicians who smoke cigarettes, right? So um, there are physicians who eat too much, who have too much salt in their diet or physicians who, drink too much alcohol or something. We have physicians who are addicted to heroin. I mean, so, you know, just because, and you could be an excellent physician, you could be an excellent therapist, and, you know, your personal life could be in shambles. So so that's one thing that I learned very, very quickly. So that you have to disabuse yourself of very fast because it will be difficult for you otherwise. The second thing that I learned was that domestic violence perpetrators, intimate partner violence perpetrators, are human beings who who deserve our compassion. Before I so for a, for a time in my early career, I actually worked with a domestic violence. I worked in a domestic violence unit and was a therapist who was you know so domestic violence treatment is typically group therapy, and these are perpetrators who have been charged and convicted in a court of law as a uh, perpetrator of domestic violence. And they're mandated to be assessed and follow the recommendations of the assessor. And the unit head would assess and decide, okay, you have to do, you know, and essentially it's intensive outpatient, which is like a year-long program that kind of tapers off at the end. And it involves at least, I don't know, once or twice a week of group and of perpetrators. And then there's a leader maybe one or two leaders, therapists that are specialized in domestic violence perpetrator treatment. And they asked me as a therapist to come in and provide a mental health angle to it. And so I learned a lot in this group and I, you know, met these guys and we would sit in a circle and we'd talk, they would talk about their feelings and, and I got to know them. And what I realized was that there are a wide variety of dudes because it was all guys. There are certainly women who are domestic violence perpetrators, but I was in a group of, of men. And what I learned was that domestic violence perpetrators are very, um, you know, they, they have different kinds of personalities. I, and maybe perpetrator isn't even the word they use anymore. I don't know. But there were men who were, you know, your very typical executive kind of guy. And then you had your very working class kind of guy. And then you had your young hipster guy. And then, you know, like, and then you had your, you know, your Asian guy and, you know, who worked at, as an accountant and he had a, you know, African-American guy who uh, worked in media or something, you know, like just regular guys from all across the spectrum. It, you know, it, I, cause prior to being in that group, I had this, this very stereotypical vision of what a domestic violence perpetrator was, which was like, I don't know, just some kind of like white scumbag, kind of like a Biff Tannen from, back to the future, that kind of character. Um, and w- I soon realized that, no, this, you know, that's obviously a stereotype. Every sort of dude personality wise and look wise and job wise. And, you know, 
can be a domestic violence perpetrator. And so that was one thing. The, the other thing I learned was that for the most part, aside from maybe just some minor exceptions, they were all caring men. They, they didn't want to hurt people. And their acts of violence and their attitudes of, of violence were a result of deep suffering that they were going through. It doesn't excuse it. They need to stop. And if they do it again, they need to be prosecuted by the law. But they weren't doing it out of evil. They didn't wake up in the morning and say, ha, 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 I'm going to ruin someone's life by beating the shit out of them. You know, that, that was not their, that's evil, right? What they did is they were like, they would wake up and they're like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a good day and I'm not going to get in a fight with my spouse and I'm going to try to make things work. And then something would happen, they'd get triggered and that would throw them into this cycle that was not good, but it wasn't under their control and they weren't really aware of it. And once they became aware of it and got some control over their emotions, they, they knew their triggers, they started challenging their sexist attitudes, they would emerge from just a year, maybe six months of treatment, completely transformed in their ability to not be violent with their spouses. And so, so what I'll say is, I think that these two lessons that I learned, I would, if I were in your shoes, patron, I would be looking at these things. You know, you have a professor in your program whom you really look up to, and you find that professor to be compassionate, empathetic, smart, you know, a, a model professional. And you're now you also have this, this knowledge that he is a domestic violence perpetrator. And you can, and from your language, you're like, well, how does this make any sense? You know, um, how this can't be, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to hate him or am I supposed to love him? And the fact is, is it's your choice. Of course you can hate him or love him, but you can absolutely continue to love him and realize that he's a flawed, a massively flawed individual that needs help. And that if he gets enough help, he can actually change his ways. And, and that when he, when he did beat his spouse, it's probably not because that was what he wants to do. Like consciously, he might make excuses for it, but what he really wants is to be close to other people. He wants a relationship and He's been traumatized in such a way that when his partner um, inadvertently triggers some of his traumas, he, he acts out and he does things that are very regrettable and might make defensive attitudes to uphold what he believes to be the only way he can gain closeness to other people. That was the thing that I realized was like these men in their domestic violence perpetration were... Um, absolutely enacting a evil sexist attitude about power and about men and women. And they were absolutely, uh, you know, they were among other men where that was okay. It was, well, you know, you just slap her around, tell her who's boss. So, you know, those are evil societal cultural notions about gender and whatnot. But what I, when I actually, you know, week in and week out got, you know, sort of broke this down with them, I realized, oh, they're suffering these guys are sad and lonely and scared and they feel inadequate and they feel powerless. They don't know what to do. And if they just had a way of which was never modeled to them by anyone in life, if they just had a way of, uh, you know, communicating more effectively, um, then they would be able to use those skills and those methods instead to retain and, um, you know, maintain relationships with other people, which is, which is what they really want. So, you know, person who wrote in, um, those are my thoughts on the matter. Uh, I'm sure it's not an easy answer because, because we'd like to be black or white, right? You know, we'd like to be like, okay, this professor, um, you know, his wife is, it's, it's a false accusation and I'm going to love this professor. He's still a hundred percent good. Or, you know, fuck it. I hate this guy. When he lectures, I'm not going to listen to him because everything he's saying is false and a sham. Um, but what I'm saying is there's a there's a massive gray area in between where you can look at him and say, 
well, what he's saying is wonderful and I'm going to use it. You know, what he's saying, I really, it, I really agree with. It makes sense to me and I'm going to use that as an inspiration. But behind the scenes, it sounds like this guy's really suffering. And him as a human being, I don't want to be him because I don't want to be a DV perpetrator. But many, many of the ideas he's proposing, I actually find to be very um, in, inspirational. And maybe even I could say he's inspirational. But he's, you know, he's got some stuff to figure out, just like I have stuff I have to figure out. All right, let's go on to another email. Actually, Umberto just texted me, so I'm going to see what he is up to. So Umberto was emailing me or texting me or Facebook messaging me asking if we were podcasting tonight because <laughs> he, you know, often we will podcast tonight. And uh, I said, no, not according to my calendar because <laughs> uh, we're going to Columbia soon. Actually, when this episode comes out, we might actually be in Columbia or I've just gotten back. Really excited going to Bogota, Colombia. That's where Umberto grew up, and I he's he was going there, and so I I asked to tag along because I've never been to Colombia before. So um, I'm sure we'll have some stories to tell once we get back. All right, let's read another email. All right, this email is from Josh from OKC or Oklahoma City. Josh writes, "I have worked before in inpatient adolescent facilities." One of the main policies is there is no physical contact allowed in these inpatient adolescent facilities. There are no high fives, no handshakes, no hugs, no pats in the back. While I understand this from a trauma-informed and liability and above reproach aspect, I can't help but wonder what harm and detriment there is to the emotional development of these children and youth to be deprived of physical touch. What are your thoughts? Yeah, this is an excellent question. It's a it's a common policy for some of these facilities to have. Basically, and I'm not there to ask them why they have these policies, but I would suspect it's because it's just so much easier to have a rigid rule, a rigid policy of just like, look, you know, no touching, no handshakes, nothing, you know, just complete um, abstinence of any kind of touch. Because if they don't have a policy like that, then really it's up to them to make sure everyone's trained well enough so that all the staff understands the the line and when it's appropriate and how to gauge whether or not it's, um, you know, if it's, um, you know, appropriate, but also like that there's permission. Also, if, if staff are allowed to touch the patients, are, are the patients allowed to touch, you know, the each other, you know, because you, because also they might worry about patients touching each other. And so now when it comes to touch, like, you know, handshakes, what's wrong with a handshake or what's wrong with a high five, but it, these organizations, it's like every week they're hiring a new staff member. And if they would, if they had to train every single person, every time they quote unquote onboarded somebody, they would have, you know, it would just cost too much money because really to, to fully train someone on uh, touching and therapy, it would probably take like, I don't know, dozens of hours. And it's just so much easier just to say, you know, no touching, no touching, arrested development, no touching. Um, whereas if you're a therapist who works at an agency where everyone goes into an office, there's a lot of touching that's happening. You know, you have kids you have high fives for sure. You might even have hugs. Um, you might, you know, do things in in session where you're helping them with their Legos or something. You know, it's just when you're working with kids in adolescence, there, there tends to be some touching. And the difference there is that it's all behind closed doors and um, each therapist, it's up to them to kind of figure out how to manage that. They get supervision and training around that, hopefully. But... Um, but when you're in an inpatient facility, there's just so much more chaos. You have people coming in and out. It's all out in the open, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. The other problem is that you're going to have some bad apples, right? You're going to have some staff who either are unaware of how to gauge their, um, their, uh, the appropriateness of touch, or you have some staff that are literally predators and, if you allow there to be some touching, you might be allowing some bad apples to actually do some very bad things to, to the patients. And 
again, it's hard to detect that, right? It's hard to, it's like, you know, when you're hiring someone, it's like, are you a serial rapist? You know, it's just something that it's hard to know. And so for the sake of the patients, it's like, yeah, let's just not do the touching. Also, there are some patients who might have a condition or, or, um, or two that make it so that touching is extremely difficult for them. They might be paranoid. They might have OCD. They might have PTSD, and, but they don't know they have PTSD. And so when you go up to them and you shake their hand or you do a, you know, let's do a high five, it might actually be traumatic for them. And it b- would be hard to know who had that sensitivity and who did not. You know, someone who was raped, a, you know, a young woman who's raped brutally by an older man, and you're an older man as a staff member, and you walk up and you say, hey, let's high five or something, that could be very detrimental to that patient. Having said that, you know, usually things like that are fine. Um, it's pretty rare that touching is a horrible thing in in these kinds of uh, institutions. And again, my guess is, is that the, um, you know, the powers that be are just like, look, um, we, we allowed some people to touch in some circumstances and it went badly or it's this huge open door to lawsuits. And so let's just make a policy of no touching and then we can forget it. Right. Cause if you make a policy of no touching, then you can just, you can just forget it. You don't have to train. You don't have to think about it. You can just completely forget it. But according, you know, to what you're saying, Josh from Oklahoma, uh, yeah, absolutely. What ends up happening is you can have a kid who was neglected or abused as a child growing up and has had no uh, compassionate, affectionate touching between them and their attachment figures. And then they go into one of these inpatient places and they're, they, they can't touch anybody. There's no, there's no allowance for any kind of touching. Now, it, when some high fives or handshakes or something might actually be incredibly therapeutic for that person. Now, it's a very subtle thing and it's, you know, ther- it's up to the therapists and the professionals to kind of figure that out. But it's just a sad thing that you can have someone who's deprived of touch as a, as a child and then they enter an inpatient facility because they're struggling with some mental issues as a result of what they went through as a child. And then they're proceeded to be completely deprived of any human touch there as well. And not only psychologically what that does to someone, biologically too. When we go without human touch, when we go without physical affection from other other beings, whether that's humans or our pets, we have difficulty thriving. We're in, our moods are not as great. Our cortisol levels go up. Our stress goes up. Heart, heart, you know, blood pressure, um, sleep is more difficult. Concentration, um, moodiness, you know, anxiety, everything gets thrown off because we evolved to be cuddling with each other. And we live in a society that shames that or um, doesn't value it enough so that people can go weeks. I have clients that I'll ask them, I'll say, you know, when was the last time you had some kind of cuddling affectionate session with, with someone that you care about? And if they're like, well, I don't, I'm not married. I don't have a partner. I'm like, well, you know, what about a friend or, you know, a family member or something? And they'll be like, what? That's ridiculous. And, and I'll say like, well, you know, well, how, you know, when's the last time? And they'll be like, oh, I don't know, five years ago. And even then it was like, yeah, it was a boyfriend. And I don't know, it was kind of tough. And, and that is, that's a problem. That's a problem. That's, that'd be like someone coming to my office and saying that, they haven't had a full night of sleep in five years. I'd, I would be very concerned about them. So, um, so yeah, it's a sad thing. And I just really feel for these people, just like what you're saying, Josh. Um, but honestly, if I owned or ran a inpatient adolescent unit, I would probably have that um, policy too. Just because how much money do I have to spend what's the quality of all the staff members that work for me? Um, What do I have to get done? You know, what are the priorities here? And, you know, maybe the touching thing could, is very low on the priority. I'm trying to, I'm trying to keep, you know, sanity in here. I'm trying to keep the chaos down. I'm trying to keep things in order. I need, I need staff people. I need everyone to kind of follow these certain rules. And, you know, I I don't know. I've never ran an inpatient facility, but I, I could see that, 
I could see contemplating that as a policy, which is, you know, it's just sad for everybody. All right, let's let's read one more email. All right, this email uh, reads, I was seeing my therapist as an individual for about a year. Then a significant issue in my marriage came up that necessitated my husband starting individual therapy. Because of the nature of the issue, my husband started seeing my own therapist along with us doing couples therapy. During a couples session, my therapist went over exactly what that would mean, including not keeping big secrets and the ability for anyone to stop this arrangement at any time and have my husband seek a different counselor. She also spoke with me individually regarding this arrangement to make sure I was okay with it. We, we occasionally do couple sessions with my current therapist too, and some sessions individually. We're making good progress individually and as a couple, and I feel there is, and I feel very good about the current arrangement. People I've told, though, are horrified that she sees both of us individually and as a couple. Even though it feels like it's working well, I can't help but question it because of the strong responses I get from other people, including some therapists. What is your take? Good question. Um, long story short, I, you know, this, this could, I would have to talk about this for a long time, but essentially, in a very short explanation, your therapist is acting ethically and within the standard of care. There's nothing to worry about. And everyone else is not right-headed. Um, she, she, what, what she did, your therapist, what your therapist did is your therapist went over the options with you and you chose to change the treatment plan to allow for this change in the treatment plan. You, you knew what you're heading into and she laid out the, you know, stipulations of, you know, what to do if something goes wrong and here's, here's the thing to do. And the two of you chose th this treatment plan and it's working well. Then the people who are horrified by this, they just don't understand ethical codes, nor, the, nor do they understand the standard of care, which, you know, many therapists and, and honestly, some couples therapists don't understand this. And, you know, I train couples therapists and they will they will hear stuff like this from other couples therapists and frankly, other faculty members in my program. They'll be like, well, you know, this instructor said it's unethical to do this sort of thing. I'm like, OK, show me a source. Show me where it says in the ethical code books that you can't do that. Show me a research study that shows that. You know, we study things. Every, many angles in our field have been studied and written about. And I challenge anybody and anyone out there, if you can find anything, any, any you know, respectable source that says you can't do that, then, I, you know, I'll change my ways. But the fact is, is it doesn't exist because there's clear literature around informed consent and, and changing of a treatment plan. And that's all that this is. You know, it's, it's the same thing as if you're, you're treating someone individually and the client one day says, you know what, I think I've reached my goals. I'm no longer depressed. I'm no longer anxious. My relationships are going well. You know what, I think I want to change the treatment plan. Well, at that point, you talk as a therapist with this individual client. You say, okay, well, so we're, we're moving towards possibly termination. Here are the pros and the cons. The pros are you don't have to come to therapy anymore and you get, you know, an extra hour a day or hour a week. And the pros are you don't have to spend the time. You get, you know, you get time, you don't have to spend the money. And, you know, and so th those are the pros. The cons are that if we have more work to be done and we don't, um, and, you know, you terminate therapy and in a, you know, six months you want to come back, and I've and I'm full at that point, and I can't see you. Then you might have to see another therapist. Those are the pros and the cons. Client, which one would you like to choose? Well, you know, so the client is informed. It's informed consent. The client has been informed of the pros and the cons in a res you know responsible, respectable, truthful manner. And the th and the client makes the choice. The client makes the choice. And so when you lay it out, so that, that's all that this is. This, you know, person's been seeing individually, the individual uh, client says, my husband needs a therapist. And she went into some detail about why her therapist was like actually the best choice. It was, it was sort of a convoluted thing, but it wasn't, you know, it was actually, you know, because it was like, why wouldn't he just go to his own therapist, you know? But there was some reason as to why she might be good for them. Also, it's... I have done this before where I've seen couples both as a couple and individually and there's a 
there's a lot of um, benefit to that because I get to see that, you know, they're coming in because one of their major things is they want to work on their relationship. And sometimes when I'm talking some, with my individual clients that I don't see their spouse, they're describing their relationship with their spouse. And I, I'm trying to picture what, it, what the behavioral sequence is and the, and the way the system operates. I'm trying to imagine what it's like when they're fighting at home, and I'm trying to help them with that. It's so much easier if I can see them fight right in front of me, right? It's so much easier if I actually know and, and get a really good sense of the other person's personality and the way these two personalities come together. And then I can help them individually as well. Now, there are cautions to this, and there are things clinically you want to look at. And, you know, I've talked about it in other episodes, but there are times when you absolutely uh, should not involve yourself in that as a therapist. And there are, you know, like going through a divorce and other kinds of things, you know, particularly stronger personality disorders and this kind of stuff. So, you know, there are times when as a therapist, you don't want to do it. And there are times that it would be considered um, ill-advised, but just saying automatically that seeing someone for couples therapy and individual therapy is unethical and somehow this terrible situation is, is just wrongheaded and uninformed and ignorant. Um, the bottom line is that it's working, and so why mess with that? And there's no reason to mess with it. Um, I think it's, you know, it's some sort of throwback to an earlier time when therapy was like almost universally individual therapy and involving other people was somehow considered this really disgusting thing on some level. But it's a really strange thing. As a marriage and family therapist, I have to say, people's reactions to marriage and family therapy is is very telling to our to our culture in, in the United States. We want everything to be extremely, um, you know, sectioned off and siloed. You know, the notion that you would bring your mother into therapy or you would bring your son into therapy or that your son would bring you into their therapy. And, you know, um, it's a very scary thing, but so much, man, I'm telling you as a marriage and family therapist, the rate of acceleration of change that I can facilitate and that clients can actually achieve in therapy is so much more rapid when the other person is in the room. It's incredible to watch. You know, it's incredible to be able to facilitate actual real communication between people. I've been seeing some couples for years and years and years. And, you know, we cut back to like, say, once a month or once every two months. And they use therapy sessions as a way to, you know, finally talk about things. It's just hard. It's scary to just have a direct conversation with your spouse. And being in therapy, having that third party, that person who is providing that container, that emotional container, providing that guidance can, can really help. And it's a powerful thing to see. Whereas if you know, these couples that I'm seeing, if, if I was just working with one of them and the other one was seeing another therapist, like I, I don't think we'd be able to get as much done, honestly. Um, we'd, you know, we'd be able to get some things done for sure, but I just feel like it's just so much faster if they're both in the room. And also, again, as I was saying earlier, if they both have individual issues and, you know, uh, I can work with them individually, that's also something I do. Now, the, I haven't done that in a long time. Um, mostly because, when in doubt, I just don't do that because it does get a little messy and it can provide some boundary issues. Again, this is a whole long issue, but um, so I'm not saying that <clears throat> I always do it because I don't. Like if like if an individual client said to me, I want to bring my spouse in, I want to start you know, doing couples therapy with you. Nine times out of 10, I'm going to say like, ah, I think you should find a different couples therapist because I want to preserve this individual space with you. Um, so, and mostly also because there's a ton of good couples therapists in Seattle. And so there's just not really a need for me to be both roles. So, so there's that. Um, but the, but the notion that somehow if someone did it, it would be completely unjustified and unethical is silly. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of psychology in Seattle. As you guys know, I always get very excited when I manage to respond to emails. I have this long document that gets longer and longer every day of, you know, lots of different people's emails. And so um, today I managed to get my email document down to 27 pages. Uh, a few months ago, it was down to like 15, but it's, you know, it's ballooned since then. <laughs> and so uh, thanks for being with me on this journey. 
what else can I tell you? Um, did Umberto text me back? Let's see. Did, what did he say here? Oh, he says he wants to do a, um, a podcast in, um, in Colombia. And that sounds awesome. So look forward to that. <laughs> Maybe I'll learn Spanish by them and we can do an entire Spanish speaking episode. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, 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 really do. Thank you.